0: Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be from Psalm 91. If you're following along in the Pewback Bibles, that's on page 497. Psalm 91, page 497. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his flight feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the sorrow, the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. and their hands they will bear you up, With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you. Uh, you may have noticed that uh, if you've been here at any time at all this summer, that there was not a three in the psalm that we're covering uh, this morning. Uh, we are skipping around this week. Sometimes uh, the Lord works in ways that changes the course of our lives in, in big, massive ways, you know, job changes or, um, you know, moving to another state or whatever, but sometimes he just changes the course of our weeks. Um, This past week was a week like that for me, and it led me to Psalm 91 for us, uh, which again is what you will notice that we are not scheduled to cover today, um, but has been a source of serious encouragement to me, and I hope I can communicate that to you this morning. Ladies, I know that some of you did all the work in summer Bible training for Psalm 63, and you're like a little upset with me right now, but don't worry, we will circle back to Psalm 63 in a few weeks, but today we are in Psalm 91. Well, uh, not long ago, I got word that one of my high school football coaches had passed away, and it got me feeling a little bit nostalgic about my years playing football, missing him, missing my teammates as we bonded through sweat sweat. Tears, blood, and the killer Tampa Heat. I was born in Tampa, uh, raised in Tampa, and, uh, and have a lot of fond memories around that football field. But black helmets on a football field in Tampa in the middle of July and August is a bad combination. We used to call them the microwaves because they would, like, microwave our brains. But, um, of course, coaches make you run around the field until you puke. But on the far corner of our practice field was this enormous enormous oak tree. Had to be like 100 years old. It was like one of those kind of oak trees. You know what I'm saying? You can picture it in your head. No matter how many laps we were forced to run around that field, just about all of us would set our sights on that oak tree. When we come around that last bend, gasping for breath, dying, we'd lock our eyes on that big, beautiful, leafy oak tree. Full football pads, black helmets, the relief of the shadows that that tree offered, in the shadows, that that tree offered uh, was a balm for our souls in those moments.
0: As long as we were close enough
1: to the shadow of that tree, we were good, in, in good shape. The further we got from it, though, obviously, the more challenging the conditions became. The difference between the full blast of the sun and the shade of the tree was staggering. We love that tree so much, so much. I actually looked it up on Google Maps. Oh, yeah, it's still there. Love that tree. Today's psalm extends a similar respite for us, I think. It takes us out of the sun and underneath the shade of the shadow of our God. Whatever you are faced with, Psalm 91 offers a big shadowy relief from the assault of the trials that you are up against right now. In times of trouble, this is definitely a psalm that you could run to, and I would encourage you to run to, to sturdy up your soul before you head back out into the sun. I don't know if it struck you this way while it was being read, but uh, at least to me, this whole thing feels like a little bit too good to be true. I'm going to do my best to untangle the too good to be truedness of this psalm for us this morning, but as, for as beautiful as this psalm is, its claims are so staggering that it can be a little bit disorienting, I think. So just just from the jump, I want to point out a clear cause and effect thread throughout this whole psalm. Now, we here, we like to fancy ourselves as gospel-centered people. We love to cling to the fact that in terms of our standing with God, we bring nothing to the table. It's a good thing to celebrate. We should. As uh, as Christians and as gospel-centered Christians, I think it's good because it fights against this unhealthy reflex in all of us. As humans, we are spring-loaded to to move into, to drift into performance mode when it comes to our relationship with God. We think to ourselves, good behavior from me reflects or generates affection from God, and then bad behavior from me generates anger from God. That's kind of the way that we are spring-loaded to think and act. So we begin to believe that how God thinks of me is ultimately dependent on how I am doing on any given day or any given moment. We can be tempted to slip into this belief that God's affection for me is dependent on this cause and effect relationship. I do good, he's happy. I do bad, he's mad. But the gospel is the good news that God does not relate to us based on our works, not on our work for Jesus, but on Jesus' work for us. The gospel tells us that God's acceptance of us is not gained by our successes nor is it forfeited by our failures because it's not even about us, it's about Jesus. God willing, I will believe and hold to and cling to this message until the day I die. That is the best news on earth. If you have never heard that and would like to know more, I'd love to, tra- uh, to chat with you, just track me down. But sometimes I do wonder, and please, 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 especially if you're in seminary right now, take this with a grain of salt, okay? Take this with a grain of salt, Sometimes I wonder if we've gotten too gospel-centered. And we begin to lose sight of the fact that there is actually a real cause and effect in the scriptures. And it is all over this psalm. Um, You can see it in verses 1 and 2. Cause, dwelling in God's shelter, dwelling in his refuge, in, in his fortress. The effect, we get access to God's shadow. In other words, according to this psalm, who's the one who gets shelter and shadow? the one who sojourns with God, the one who dwells with him. Verse 9, it's on screen behind me, yeah. Cause, you have made the Lord your dwelling place. The effect, no evil will befall you, no plague come near you. Verse 14, cause, we hold fast to God. What is the effect of that? We get deliverance. Verse 14 again, knowing God's name results in protection. Verse 15, calling to God. The effect, answers from God for presence and trouble and rescue and honor and long life. So you see, according to the word of God, your actions actually do matter. If you haven't experienced the nearness of God, or if you have never observed his rescue, or enjoyed his nearness and trouble, that's an effect, but I wonder if you've ever considered the cause to that effect. Maybe it's because you and me, we haven't actually engaged in some of these cause behaviors. There is a real cause and effect in the scriptures, even if you have like a white-knuckled grip on the gospel. As gospel-centered Christians, we like to think and say, there's nothing I can say or do that will separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that is true. It's amazing. We believe that, and we hold to that daily as we wrestle with our sin. However, this reality does not negate the real cause and effect reality between certain actions leading to certain consequences. So I just want to really encourage us this morning, I guess like I would encourage us every week, to radically obey this psalm. To dwell in the shadow of the Almighty is the way the psalm opens up. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. To dwell is just to stay, right? Those who stay under the shelter are those that access the relief of the shadow. Those that stay get access to relief, but there's a lot of breathtaking effects that hinge on the causes that are scattered throughout this psalm. Let's just sort of bullet point them with a little discussion along the way today. So, so first, let's take a look at some stunning assurances of God's care. Stunning assurances of God's care. Verse one, uh, shadow and shelter, refuge and fortress in the most high. That's, that's how God is described and what God does here. That's how he's described and what he does. There is this one thing The one thing about the tree on the corner of our practice field, it was only as helpful as it was high, right? It would have been, if it would have been one of those little potted trees that you pick up from Home Depot, there would have been no relief from the Tampa heat. Can you just picture like 60 large dudes huddling up together under one of those things in the blazing sun? It's a funny picture, and it would have been a useless uh, source of relief. But according to verse one, the shadow God casts is from the most high shelter the highest shelter, Derek Kidner says, most high is a title which cuts every threat down to size. Whatever the threat on your life right now, there is relief in the shadow of God. But like we mentioned about the oak, the relief, like we mentioned about the oak tree for us as football players, the the, the relief requires proximity. In fact, I think that may really just be the main thrust of this psalm. Safety comes with proximity. Safety comes with proximity. That's why the call to be near to God resurfaces so many times here. Verse one, dwell in the shelter. Verse one again, be close enough to be in the shadow. Verse nine, make the Lord your dwelling place. Verse 14, hold fast to God in love. Safety comes with proximity. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Safety comes with proximity. Now, safety from what is one question we should be asking ourselves. And we'll untangle that in a few minutes. But just know that the big idea here is that safety comes with proximity. Let's keep ticking through these verses. Look down, if you will. These won't be on screen. Verse three, he will deliver you from the deadly pestilence. Verse seven, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near to you. Verse ten. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. Verse 14, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. I mean, listen, in our more honest moments, Christians, which of us doesn't struggle to believe these claims on the surface? I do. There's a sense in which these promises seem absurd and provably false. I mean, COVID has affected and even tragically killed Christians, and non-Christians alike, right? Are those of us who are still alive in nearest proximity to God? Is that why we're still okay? If Psalm 91 means what it seems to mean, then it flies in the face of our human experience. Are we really to believe the idea that those who trust God won't be snared, won't get a disease, won't die in battle, won't experience evil, won't lose friends, won't lose a family member to a disease, won't stub our toes? Won't lose a child or a spouse, but will always, without exception, be delivered and protected. Is that really what we're supposed to believe? Do you hear these verses and wonder how they relate to you? Has evil befallen you? Did the angels miss their appointment to bear you up, like the Psalm says? Forgot to put it in Google Calendar. What do we do with Psalm 91? Well, let me tell us the best place to start figure this out. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but this is about the best advice I could ever give you, at least with regard to reading the scriptures. It's this. The best commentary on the scriptures is the scripture itself. The Bible is its own best interpreter. I mean, I've got like a thousand books on my shelf, but the one that will always serve me best if I can't seem to understand a certain part of the Bible is the Bible itself. And wouldn't you know it, We have a commentary on this psalm in the New Testament, and you will find it in Matthew 4. You can turn there if you want. I'll put some of the stuff on screen for us. But the trouble with Matthew 4 is that the guy who's writing the commentary is Satan himself, all right? Uh, He is telling us how we should understand Psalm 91. So let me recap for you a little bit of the story before before I untangle this for us. So Jesus has just fasted and prayed for 40 days in isolation. He's weak. He's weak. And if he's anything like me, experiencing severe hanger, y'all know what I'm talking about. 40 days without food and water produces hanger. That's cause and effect right there. Satan springs a trap right now at Jesus' weakest moment. He leads Jesus to Jerusalem and up to the pinnacle of the temple and and tempts Jesus to jump off to show God's protective power. Quoting Psalm 91, he says to Jesus, on screen. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, and here's the quote from Psalm 91, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Another quote there from Psalm 91, 12. That itself is from Matthew 4:6. So in other words, he's saying, Jesus, jump off from here, because the Bible says in Psalm 91 that the angels won't let you die if you jump off this temple. He's tempting Jesus. By quoting Psalm 91 to him. So let's look at some satanic distortions about God's care. So there are some stunning assurances of God's care that seem almost too hard to believe. And now we're going to uncover some satanic distortions about God's care. One of the interesting things about this theological debate between Jesus and Satan is that at first glance, Satan's interpretation of Psalm 91 appears to be on point. Right off the bat, it looks like, yeah, what you're saying is true, Satan, the basic message is those in proximity to God are protected by God. Satan is applying that to the particular situation there in Matthew 4. Who is closer to God than Jesus? Of all people in the world, Jesus could count on God to come through for him, right? You'd like to think so. Satan believed this to be a messianic psalm, a psalm that was about Jesus a thousand years before Jesus was ever here. Satan believed that about him, and he was right about that. But Jesus refuses to be seduced by Satan's distorted view of Psalm 91. So in Jesus' mind, Satan is tempting him to do something against the grain of Scripture, against what the intent of Psalm 91 was. Jesus' rebuttal here clearly shows that the devil's use of Psalm 91 is a perversion of the Spirit's original intent for Psalm 91. Now we're getting heady here. Stick with me. We need to be aware that the devil, that Satan, is going to try to pervert texts like this for us too. Look, the psalmist was no dummy. He's not just an eternal optimist that thinks all of these things in Psalm 91 are just going to be true for everybody at all time. He wasn't naive he wasn't unaware of the truths like in an earlier psalm. Psalm 44, he says this. You've got to kind of compare this, what you see here with Psalm 91. In 44, he says, For your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and depression? So what's true? The heaven of Psalm 91 or the hell of Psalm 44? And how are these polar opposites reconciled? Can they even be reconciled? If we want to fully understand this psalm the way that it was originally intended to be read and understood and even embraced, we need to turn to the one who understood it best and the one to whom this psalm was written, the one whom this psalm was written about and fulfilled by. Listen, Psalm 91 is not ultimately about you. It's not ultimately about me. One pastor says it like this. This is the counterintuitive wonder of the Psalms. Our lives are impacted most by realizing that the Psalms are not finally about us. They're about Jesus. The you and you will not fear in its fullest and final sense is the Lord Jesus. In the final tally, the psalmist is talking to Jesus. So we've said that safety comes with proximity. But clearly in Jesus' life, his proximity to God did not make him invulnerable to pain. You heard of the cross, right? I'm sure from a child, Jesus was taught, and he loved Psalm 91. He knew it from, from childhood. Yet look how his life ended. Wasn't his life and death a living demonstration that Psalm 91 is a crock? No. Earlier in the Psalms, we get a hint about what happened to Jesus thousands of years later so if you're not familiar with the christian bible the book of psalms was written uh at least a thousand years before jesus ever set foot on the planet and so we get hints about what would come uh when jesus arrived (laughs) psalm 22 says this a company of evildoers encircles me they have pierced my hands and feet so like a, a little preview what was coming Clearly, the seemingly faith value of Psalm 91 that talks all about that protection and your foot not falling and and death not coming, Um, clearly, the seemingly faith value of Psalm 91 did not come true for the godliest person who has ever lived. What gives? The one who is nearest to God did not seem to be experiencing the Psalm 91 version of the care of God. So here's the conundrum. You're probably seeing it. Jesus got killed. And he got killed underneath the shadow of the Almighty. Those are the two things that we have to hold together and have to hold in tension. Jesus got killed under the shadow of the Almighty. Both Psalm 91 and Psalm 22 find their fulfillment in Jesus, but not simultaneous fulfillment. And I think this is critical for us understanding the psalm. So let's compare these two things. Psalm 22, 16 accompanying of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and feet, versus Psalm 91 7, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but destruction will not come near you. Well, which is it? Which one is true? Which one can we hold to? It's both. If Jesus only ever fulfilled Psalm 22 and not Psalm 91, we'd be doomed. And if Psalm 91 didn't ultimately become true in Jesus, we'd also be hopeless. Thankfully, he makes both true. Jesus knew Psalm 91. He understood perfectly its application. He believed it. He loved it. It wasn't a turnoff to him when he was hanging on the cross. He knew suffering and salvation would both ultimately be true of him. But we only get an empty tomb after a blood-soaked cross both were true of jesus the empty tomb proving that god is the protector the bloody cross proving that life is hard and we need god to make it through so while all the psalms find their ultimate purpose in pointing to and fulfillment in jesus they don't all simultaneously at the same time find fulfillment in him so satan's understanding of psalm 91 is distorted and he wants to distort it for you He's casting, doubt, uh, ca- uh, casting doubts on the claims of this psalm. And he will do the same for you. Maybe even through a psalm like this, he'll whisper, You've got cancer. God's a liar. Look what he said in Psalm 91 No pestilence will come to you. Jesus did not call God a liar when the thorns were plunged into his scalp. The devil will whisper, Your family member died. God's a liar. He said that no harm will come to your household. Jesus did not renounce Psalm 91 when his beard was being ripped from his face. We have to submit to Jesus' understanding of this psalm. For Jesus, Satan was quoting the right thing at the wrong time, in the wrong way, for the wrong goal. And why is that? Well, Jesus had come into the world to suffer and to die. That was the whole point, He was going to be crushed. Therefore, all of the psalms of never coming to harm or always being delivered could not be applied directly to Jesus at any given moment. He came to die. And Jesus knew it, which is why he defiled the satanic distortion of Psalm 91. And it's why we should too. Satan's always been about the business of sowing seeds of doubt in the goodness of God. You've got to be aware of that. Satan's always been about the business of sowing seeds of doubts in the goodness of God. Does God really not want you to enjoy the amazing fruit of that tree? It's been around since the beginning. If God is so good, then why are you suffering so much? That is totally Satan's MO, and we need to be aware of it, Christians. It's taken many a believer down a road of unbelief and toward a tragic end. Do not let Satan distort these beautiful truths for you. With, pull, with a full and perfect knowledge of Psalm, Psalm 91, Jesus embraced the path of suffering. He wasn't delivered from Judas's betrayal. He wasn't spared a lacerated back. He wasn't delivered from thorns plunged into his scalp. He wasn't protected from the nail-pierced hands. The spear really did split his side in two. He was killed by his enemies. And yet, Psalm 91 still holds true in its ultimate sense. So finally, this leads us to what our posture should be about God's care. Surrendered confidence about God's care. There are some stunning assurances in Psalm 91 that are hard to believe. In Matthew 4, there is some uh, satanic distortions about that care. But we need to have, according to the psalm, a surrendered confidence about his care. And here's what I mean by surrendered confidence. I mean that our prayers for deliverance should be shaped by how Psalm 91 was fulfilled for Jesus. So our desperation, whatever it might be for you, for enduring safety and security was never meant to be finally satisfied in this world. I mean, we all pray for things that we want and feel like we need, but ultimately, those desires were not meant to be satisfied in their ultimate sense in this world. But we were meant to find a true, eternal refuge in God himself through the life death, and resurrection of his son. That, you have to believe this morning, is where you will find your security. Psalm 91 finds its fulfillment in Jesus because Jesus dwells in the closest proximity to God. Indeed, Jesus is God. And so we abide in the shadow of the Almighty by abiding in Jesus, by dwelling with Jesus, by living in Jesus. Where do we find Jesus? Right here, man. This is how you attain proximity. If in recent weeks or months or since the pandemic or whatever, if you've fallen out of a rhythm of drawing near to God, can I encourage you to pick it back up? In this book is life, and you need life, and I need life. So we pray for deliverance and protection, we beg for it, and then we surrender. And we hold these two things in tension. The writer of Psalm 91 stands with Jesus who said, just two verses apart, some of you they will put to death. The same breath, he said, but not a hair of your head will perish. Well, What? Right? This is the ultimate care Psalm 91 is referring to, though. God often wills for his followers like Jesus to suffer, but he forbids, and take confidence and comfort in this this morning, Christian, he forbids that that suffering will hurt you in the end. Jesus knew that God's promises in Psalm 91 wouldn't keep him from the cross. But he also knew that the Father would raise him up. That Jesus' lungs would breathe their last, his heart would pump its last, but they would fill with oxygen again. His veins would course with blood again. In Christ, we need not fear the terror of the night, the arrow that flies by day, or the pestilence or destruction, verses five and six of Psalm 91. Psalm 91 not because we're immune to pain because we're not but because we will be brought safely through the pain into ultimate security just like jesus god did not exercise his sovereign power to deliver jesus off of that cross and i'm just going to level with you this morning he won't always exercise it to deliver you and me from trial either In fact, here's what Jesus promised in John 15. He said, if they persecuted me, they're also gonna persecute you. It's coming. Be encouraged. I think we can draw several fair and concluding observations here about this enigmatic, but hugely victorious and encouraging psalm. And I really believe that each of these conclusions should lead us along a path of surrendered confidence in the sovereignty of God. And I think that we can legitimately pray with great confidence uh, this psalm without assuming it's giving us permission to become like spiritual kamikazes who are untouchable and invincible. We know that Psalm 91 will ultimately and always be true for God's children. Psalm 91, maybe you go back home and read it this afternoon, it will ultimately be true for you in every sense. Every word, every jot and tittle will be true about you if you are in Christ. That is a hope that you can hunker down in right there. That's a big shady oak tree to take a breath under in the midst of the blazing sun that you're walking through right now. Here's three concluding ideas that will aid us in our understanding of the way Jesus interacted with the truth of Psalm 91. So some applications here or observations. First, God sometimes does deliver from physical harm. This should teach us to pray for protection when danger is near. We should. We can pray the realities of Psalm 91 in faith, knowing that if God in his good providence wants to deliver you from that thing, he can and he will. Uh, John Patton was a missionary to the new uh, Hebrides Islands in in the 1800s, the mid-1800s, where he lived in constant danger among cannibalistic tribes. And he wrote this in his autobiography. He said, a wild chief followed me for four hours with his loaded musket. And though often directed toward me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him, fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and would protect me till my allotted task was finished. Looking up in unceasing prayer to our dear Lord Jesus, I left all in his hands and felt immortal till my work was done. This is Psalm 91 kind of like in real life. Looking up in unceasing prayer, that's him dwelling in proximity. That's him dwelling in the shadow of the Most High. And yet he has this surrendered confidence that no matter what, God's will will be done. And he is content in that. It is good and right for us to to cry out to God for for provision and protection. He is your Heavenly Father. He is your Daddy. Go to him Like your daddy, he cares about every detail of your life. Psalm 56 says that he holds your tears in a bottle. And he redeems your life from the pit. Psalm 103. So pray and ask for protection. Second, God always protects followers so that nothing bad happens to them that is not ultimately good for them. God always protects his followers that nothing bad happens to them that is not ultimately good for them. This should teach us to trust God when life is spiraling. Joseph, at the end of his long life, when he was abused, betrayed, falsely convicted of a crime, uh, he had a really tough set of circumstances, if you're familiar with the story of Joseph. and at, At the end of his life, he's looking at his brothers on his deathbed, and he's like, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But he's saying that if I hadn't been sold, if I hadn't been imprisoned, if I hadn't been falsely convicted of a crime, a whole nation would have perished. You know that part of the story? If the bad wouldn't have happened, the good never would have happened. In the moment, it appeared like God had abandoned him. But in reality, nothing bad was happening to Joseph that wasn't for his ultimate good. This scary thing that I am being forced to endure will ultimately be good for me no matter what. Follow that. This thing that you're up against right now will, if you are in Christ, ultimately be good for you no matter what. There is purpose behind the hardship. Jesus knew this. Joseph learned it too. Knowing an all-wise loving God will weave these hardships together into a beautiful tapestry, gives us the strength and the confidence to keep going. The unrest this psalm creates is the reality of suffering in the face of promises like this. But we can see in the life of Jesus that our suffering isn't purposeless. Sometimes we know, other times we don't. The purpose, but purpose fuels patience, even if we don't know the purpose. I have no idea what that sentence means. I don't know why I wrote it. Purpose Fuels patience, even if we don't know the purpose. I'm not sure. If you guys know what that means, track me down afterwards. (laughs) Should have wrote that one better. Um, Your suffering has a purpose. And even better, your suffering has an end. Third and finally, God often wills for his followers like Jesus to suffer, but forbids that the suffering hurts them in the end. God often wills for his followers like Jesus to suffer but forbids that the suffering hurts them in the end. This should teach us to hope when life is spiraling because the only evil that can befall you is temporary. Here's the way Charles Spurgeon described the meaning of Psalm 91. This is awesome. He says, It is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. The most crushing calamities can only shorten his journey and hasten him toward his reward. Ill to him is not ill, But only good in mysterious form. Losses enrich him, sickness is his medicine, reproach is his honor, death is his gain. No evil in the strict sense of the word can happen to him, for everything is overruled for good. Happy is he who is in such a case. He is secure where others are in peril, he lives where others die. There is coming a time when all of these statements from Psalm 91. All of these promises will ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus and in all of those who are in, for all of those who are in Jesus, in the new earth and in the ideal world, Psalm 91 will be our reality. All of these promises will not prove to be overstatements. It won't be too good to be true anymore. All sins will be forgiven. All diseases will be healed eventually. And Jesus will have proven himself to have forged away through suffering, just like you will have to forge your way by God's grace and his spirit through suffering. Because of the cross, the refuge of the people of God is not a refuge from suffering and death, but a refuge from final and ultimate defeat. Lock your eyes on the big leafy tree of Psalm 91 and rest in its shadow. And remember, your soul is only as safe as it is near to God. So if your habits have waned, if the word is more of an afterthought rather than a first thought, make yourself a note right now to get into the scripture before your phone tomorrow morning. Scripture before phone. I've never done this before, and the thought just occurred to me, so it might be a bad idea, but I want to I wanna call for some feedback from you, because uh, I've been rebuked in this last week about... Uh, what my heart's inclination is when I am wrestling with something really grievous and hard, where I tend to go rather than the shadow of the tree. So for you, just raise your hand or call it out. What are some things that we run to instead of the shadow of something like Psalm 91, the Word of God? Does anybody have any ideas that might be applicable to a room this size? Tom, what? Facebook, there you go. Can you imagine? We all are spring-loaded to go to Facebook rather than the King of the Universe. Like when you put it like that, it's kind of crazy, but we do it, don't we? Television, yep, absolutely, it numbs the mind, doesn't it? Busyness, oh man, that's me, burn right there. Yes, social media, TV, uh, busyness. What else? Buffalo Bills. Can you imagine going to the Buffalo Bills when you have other options available to you? Not this year. You'd probably want to go to the Buffalo Bills this year. They're looking good. What's that? Food. Yeah. Food. Yes. I confessed that to Miriam this morning. Problem-solving instead of knee bending, getting on my knees to pray. That's good. What's that? Friends. Yeah. How about alcohol or other things that numb us? Sleep. Yes. Maybe one or two more. No more. That's fine. Um, What are we doing? Run into these things. What am I doing? let's run under the shadow let us let our troubles we said this a few weeks ago troubles trigger our prayers let's let our troubles chase us to this book chase us into proximity resurrect those old habits nestle up under the tree find rest find relief from the hot sun of your circumstances trinity safety comes with proximity so draw near Draw near. Pray with me. And as I pray, the communion servers and the band can come up. Lord, I pray that our troubles would trigger our prayers. I pray that our troubles would chase us into proximity with you and nearness to you. Help us not solve our own problems, but come to you in desperation, knowing that we will find respite and rest in our souls, and ultimately, at the end of time, for soul and body. We love you, Lord. We want to be near you. We know that being near you is the best thing for us. Help us want it more. Give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.